Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Well, I really want to give a shout out to Amanda Carpenter for filling in for me on Mondays. Uh, if you have not yet checked it out, she gave a preview of a solo podcast that I certainly hope she's going to make a regular feature here on the Bulwark. Need to know. For those of you who have been listening to us, you know what we generally do on this podcast. But just a quick reminder. We do this every single day, and we try to have the most interesting guests in in the country. So in the last uh, few days, we've had Tom Nichols, we've had the Washington Post columnist uh, Philip Bump, Jonathan Martin from the New York Times, Dana Milbank uh, from the Washington Post, again, has a new book out, Peter Weiner. In the last couple of weeks, we've also talked with Admiral James Stavridis, former high commander at NATO, Andrew Weissman, former DOJ official, one of the top officials in the Mueller investigation. We've also been joined by Adam Kinzinger, uh, by Michael Steele, the former chairman of the Republican National Committee, and by The Atlantic's Mark Leibovich, who also has a new book out. And on today's program, I cannot believe that this is her first appearance on the podcast because we've talked about her work for it feels like many years now. Nicole Hemmer is a political historian at Vanderbilt University who specializes in media, conservatism, and the far right. And she has a new book, Partisans, the Conservative Revolutionaries Who Remade American Politics in the 1990s. So first of all, uh, good morning, Nicole. Good morning. I'm so glad to be here. So I'm reading the title of this book, Conservative Revolutionaries. That's an oxymoron. Isn't it? Isn't it supposed to be in? I mean, conservatives are supposed to be the opposite of revolutionaries. Yes, it's supposed to be an oxymoron, but there was actually a, a really a movement in the 1970s and the 1980s for conservatives to take on a more radical approach to politics. And by the 1990s, that kind of radicalism, that idea that you needed to remake the government, overthrow the uh, the current order in the United States, that became a pretty key part of right-wing politics in the U.S. And you've also traced the role of conservative media, which, of course, is one of my interests as well, having been part of it and, and, and a theme of, of this podcast. You know, every once in a while, people will say, you know, you guys focus too much on the media. Shouldn't you be talking more about politics? But I would argue, and I think you might agree, that you cannot understand the current political moment or the derangement of right-wing politics without understanding the central role that right-wing media has played in the past for decades and continues to play now. That's basically, that's basically one of the arguments you have made in several books now, correct? Yes, um, that's absolutely right. That even outside of right-wing media, because we are a democracy, our media environment is a core part of our political environment. The two can't be separated from one another. Media and politics go hand in hand. And I think sometimes people think of media as ephemeral or too cultural and not really about hard politics. But you can't make sense of what policies get put in place or how voters make their choices without understanding the media environment that they and politicians are sort of soaked in. So was there a moment at which the entertainment wing of the Republican mm -hmm. Party became dominant? 
when when the Republican Party basically became a, a creature of of its entertainment wing rather than the the other way around. Because I still remember when it used to be kind of a talking point on the left that well, conservative media gets its talking points from the RNC, and after all, you kind of roll your eyes like, no, I think it's the other way around now. What was the the tipping point? Do you think? I actually think that this, it's a longer process, but the the 1990s really were an important turning point. And I point to one example from 1992 when George H.W. Bush was running for president. And he's so worried about the challenge that he had faced from Pat Buchanan, the challenge that he was facing from Ross Perot, that he calls up Roger Ailes, who was the producer at the time for Rush Limbaugh's television show. Um, and Rush Limbaugh was such a huge figure in the early 1990s and invites him to stay overnight in the Lincoln bedroom at the White House. George H.W. Bush carries Rush Limbaugh's bags. It's a story that Limbaugh tells over and over, over and over, over again, <laughs> oh, like weekly on his radio show. But that's a really important moment. You know, you have advisors to Bush saying, you need to sound more like Rush Limbaugh. And then you have a leader of the uh, Republicans in Congress, Newt Gingrich, who is really focused on rhetoric and words and media. He throws open in 1995 when he becomes Speaker of the House the doors of the Capitol to radio show hosts um, all across the country so that they can amplify the message. And I think that that's still Gingrich trying to manipulate these different factions. Um, but you can already sense that something is changing. And by the end of the 1990s, not only do you have magazines like the American Spectator that are setting the conspiracy framework around the Clinton administration, um, but you have a whole new profusion of right-wing radio hosts. And that really is a moment to throw in Fox News and you suddenly have an entertainment complex large enough to start dictating to the Republican Party. Yeah, another frequently told story, of course, is that after the Republicans uh, shocked the world and took control of Congress back in 1994, uh, one of the first things they did when they had their uh, initial caucuses in, in early 1995, uh, they brought Rush Limbaugh in to speak to the mm -hmm. freshman class, right? I mean, so it was it was this acknowledgement that in many ways they were already a creature of conservative talk radio. Absolutely. They give uh, Rush Limbaugh a pin and a title, calling him the majority maker. Um, and they turn to him for advice for what they should do in this new Congress. And one of the things he says is that you do not waver. If Newt Gingrich wavers on his promises, if he doesn't stay a hardline conservative, then I'm coming after him. And that threat was well understood by Gingrich and the, the other members of the Republican caucus going into uh, to the new Congress. Well, I'm sorry to say that I have a picture here of a much younger person with, with much darker hair, me, sitting with Newt Gingrich <laughs> in 1995, where he was appearing on my conservative radio talk show host, and that was a long time ago. Uh, but I do think that that was one of the turning points. Okay, I want to take a quick digression. Let's run the tape forward to mm -hmm. where we're at now. And this may not be a direct line here, but I was uh, over the weekend was watching some videotapes of something that happened at a school board meeting down in, in Texas. This is the Grapevine Colleyville School District. 
Uh, it is, uh, then that's between Dallas and Fort Worth. I'm not all that familiar with, uh, with, with the geography down there. But the school board was voting on um, a set of policies that would limit how teachers talk about race, gender, sexuality. Uh, it would affect, you know, which bathrooms transgender students could use, would give trustees greater say over what books are available in the schools. They would be banning, you know, certain kinds of books that would talk about uh, uh, gender fluidity. Um, it would affect the ability of transgender students to participate in athletics. So it, it was a whole package of things that were being pushed through the, by this, uh, the, the school board. And they had a hearing the other day, and I think, you know, hundreds of people showed up. And um, speaker number 120, I think, comes up to the podium, big guy, wearing a baseball cap and a red T-shirt. And this is, this is an excerpt from his, his, his comments to the school board. Let's just play that. Yeah! Thank you, Shannon, Casey, Timmy, Kathy. Keep winning, baby! Do it! Embrace simple truths. There's only two genders. And boys should go to boys' rooms. Girls should go to girls' restrooms. And guess what? Teachers shouldn't be forced to use your freaking made-up fantasy pronouns. Fight like hell! Hold the line against the LGBT mafia and their dang pedo fans. Keep winning! You know what? Keep the wing. They can keep the monkey pox. How's that working? Monkey pox. Keep winning so much, we'll keep coming. You know what? We're going to keep coming so hard, the only thing these woke cards got to figure out is whether it's on their face, back, butt, or thighs. Woo! It's up! Thank you! (laughs) Wow. Yes, I only got about half that, but, you know, it, it, it did strike me that these moments really are creations of a entertainment talk radio right-wing media universe that that if you spend enough time you you might have picked up some of those code words you might have picked up that that whole theatrical entertainment element of just throwing stuff up against the wall this is a guy who has marinated in this world for a very long time and it really affects in order to understand how all of this plays out in the real world, you you can't separate the two phenomena, can you? None of what he just said would make sense unless right. you had tapped into kind of the exactly. okay groomer stuff Pedo. that's been talked about, the pedophile conspiracies, but also, I mean, deeply anti-gay screeds, the monkeypox monkey reference. Pox. But also, Charlie, <laughs> the profanity of it like at the end there he's making some pretty graphic sexual references Mm -hmm. and it's it really isn't until you have a more robust entertainment oriented conservative media that that kind of over-the-top offensiveness gets rewarded and gets popularized in the way that you just hear it in in that clip. This is not what firing line with William F. Buckley sounded like. Right. See, that's the point. But I think Tom Nichols has made this point uh, that for a lot of Americans now, they become engaged in these issues, and it is a form of entertainment, and it is a form mm-hmm. of theater. And that, again, is is part of the process that we're seeing. Okay, so let's go back to the 1980s and the 1990s, because you make a very interesting point. Actually, I'm reading a review of your book that says your book is an exploration of how and why Reaganism, which in the 1980s seemed to be the future, not only of the conservative movement, but of U.S. politics more broadly, collapsed so quickly. 
Now, this may come as a counterintuitive point because a lot of people think, well, what we're experiencing now is a direct line from Reaganism. But you would argue that Reaganism collapsed under the weight of this new culture. Talk to me about that. Sure. So one of the things that I think because Reagan looms so large mythologically on the right and in American politics more broadly, we forget the real Reagan, the Reagan who was very much a product of the Cold War and whose politics were fundamentally shaped by the Cold War. The the sort of appeals that he makes to freedom and democracy are about combating the Soviet Union. And so he embraces things like free markets and open immigration. He proposes something in his 1980 campaign that's very similar to the North American Free Trade Agreement or NAFTA. And he has a kind of sunny optimism that he brings to his politics, not every corner of his politics, but he really did believe in this kind of upbeat, big tent conservatism. And by the time you get to the 1990s, you're dealing with something very different. The Cold War has ended. And so you have people like Pat Buchanan, who is a perennial presidential candidate, coming forward and saying, actually, I'm not sure that democracy is necessarily the best way to run this country. You have a politics that becomes almost instantaneously meaner and more media-oriented. And you begin to see the rise of a, a Reagan critical conservatism that takes a while to really take hold. I don't I don't want to suggest that Reagan isn't in the DNA of contemporary conservatism, but this much more media-based, democracy skeptical, America first conservatism is getting underway in the 1990s in a way that I don't think we've fully appreciated until now. Okay, two points. I mean, number one, you could argue, at least on the surface, that Ronald Reagan also came from the entertainment wing of the party. He was an actor. He was a movie actor. Mm -hmm. So how is that different from now seeing the influence of other entertainers in the party? Also, Pat Buchanan was a Reaganite. He worked in the Reagan White House. A lot of people see him as continuity of Reagan, but you would argue he's a break. So I, I throw in two questions at you there. No, they're both great questions, too. Reagan was came up through a kind of older media. Um, he comes up through the Hollywood system, through network television, a few of his scripted radio shows in the late 1970s. But he also sort of laundered his celebrity and his media background through politics, right? He runs for governor of California. He governs there for eight years to build up his political bona fides. Somebody like Pat Buchanan, who, yes, absolutely, in the 1980s, he was sometimes critical of Reagan, but he he joins the Reagan team in 1985. But he quickly recognizes, uh, in his words, that the greatest political vacuum in American politics is to the right of Ronald Reagan. Mm. He initially wants to run in the 1988 race against George H.W. Bush, but he very quickly figures out that Reagan still looms way too large. You can't run against Reagan as a Republican in 1988. Four years later, you can, because George H.W. Bush, who continued quite a number of Reagan's policies, um, becomes the whipping boy of the right. And so Buchanan is able to run the same kind of political campaign he imagined in 1988 in 1992. And he 
is also a media person. He's somebody who hasn't necessarily laundered right. his uh, his media through elected office. He's somebody who people know because of his appearances uh, as host of CNN's Crossfire and uh, of PBS's The McLaughlin Group. Um, that's his platform for running for president. And that is, I think, different from Reagan, who had that experience as governor. So in your introduction to your book, you write about watching Trump accepting the nomination in 2016 in Cleveland. And, and you write the party's transformation, sudden though it seemed, had been underway for a quarter century in the term toward nativism and more overt racism and the criticisms of conservative elites in the wariness about free trade and democracy and the sharp elbowed fact light punditry. And none of it had happened behind the scenes. None of it was was hidden. It was all out there in plain sight. But as you point out, too many people were too attached to the idea of the party of Reagan to notice how fundamentally conservative politics had changed. And I, I'm going to put myself in that category that I did not fully understand that transformation, how deep it ran. I mean, look, we all saw Pat Buchanan. We knew those people were out there. We never thought we, me, didn't think they would ever become dominant, but they saw something that a lot of Republicans did not see, right? That's right. And that's, I mean, I think that the the nativism is a good place to look. In, in 1994, of course, the, uh, Proposition 187 in California brings a kind of nativist politics to the fore. Um, the Republican Party moves sharply right when it comes to immigration, not across the board. There, there's still an argument being had within the Republican Party. Pat Buchanan in 92 is calling for um, a border wall. Uh, in 94, you have Proposition 187. In 95, you have the publication of Peter Brimlow's Alien Nation, mm-hmm. um, which is a deeply racist anti-immigrant screed that um, Pat Buchanan carries on the campaign trail in 1996. And yet, you know, just four years later, you have George... W. Bush become president. And he is somebody who is pro-immigration reform, somebody who um, wants there to be this warmer, kinder conservatism, especially when it comes to immigration. And Charlie, what happens? By 2006, 2007, he runs straight into the, <laughs> the wood thrasher of the Republican base. There is an absolute mutiny among nativists, base Republicans against George Bush's proposed immigration reforms. And that comes up again and again throughout the 20 teens until Donald Trump is able to put it front and center in the presidential campaign of 2016. So it's there. Those fights are happening, um, but they haven't quite completely shaken out until the Trump presidency. I think a lot of people find it interesting to realize that the Reagan presidency, which for a long time was regarded as the as the peak moment for conservatism took place before the advent of mass uh, and successful uh, conservative talk radio before the mm-hmm. repeal of the Fairness Doctrine or Rush Limbaugh. When Ronald Reagan was president, there was no Fox News. There was no Breitbart. What was conservative media like in the 1980s? I mean, I'm thinking back on it. The editorial page of a few newspapers, American Spectator, National Review, that was pretty much it, right? And some kind of sketchy right-wing radio shows that had their ups and their downs. So what was it like back in the 80s? You know, it was a little thin on the ground. So, you know, in my first book, Messengers of the Right, mm-hmm. I write about this 
first generation of conservative media activists who are building conservative media outlets, but many of them are sort of on the wane by the mid to late 1970s. And so these radio shows that had been really popular, a couple television shows, they disappeared before Reagan appeared on the scene. And in a lot of ways, you didn't necessarily need robust conservative media because you had Reagan out there who had in in his own way sort of sucked all the oxygen out. You had Reagan critics who were trying to pummel Reagan. So you had things like Richard Vigory's Conservative Digests, a publication of the New Right. But it, it really had to pull its punches. Human events. Human events was out there. Yeah. And even then, like Conservative Digest folds by the end of the 1980s. There, there's not a robust conservative media because Reagan doesn't need the help. <laughs> And there's not a lot of appetite for criticism of Reagan from the right. And so, you know, you have, as you mentioned, a handful of magazines. You have, um, you know, at that point, you have crossfires on the air so you can hear some some conservative voices. Um, But it's just not very robust. It's once... Reagan wins sort of back-to-back landslides and media outlets begin to realize that there's a real market for conservatism in the United States, not just in politics, but in media, that there's a more openness to innovation. And then you get the rise of cable, which allows for a kind of narrow casting that allows for more targeted political messaging and entertainment. And that really opens the door to something new. So that also gave Reagan a little bit of elbow room, though, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he he didn't have these loud, loud, loud voices that would whip him when he talked about being the shining city on the hill. You know, if we must have walls, they have to have doors. He was not going to be lambasted in a hundred different right wing websites. So he had he had a certain freedom of movement that conservative politicians of later generation no longer enjoyed. Correct. Yeah, and that's something that you see, you know, Reagan raises taxes twice in his first term after his tax cuts. Um, He opens up conversations and negotiations with the Soviet Union, something that his conservative critics hated. I mean, they threw some of their, their sharpest insults at Reagan during those moments. And they want to have more power, right? They want to be able to hold conservative presidents um, to the party line, but they just can't do it with Reagan. And so Reagan's allowed to govern. That won't be the the case for George H.W. Bush, who, when he backtracks on taxes, faces a much more punitive both media system and um, political opposition. So at the same time, to be a conservative in the 1980s, though, was a completely different experience. Maybe not a completely mm-hmm. different, but, but it was a, a qualitatively different experience because It was very, very difficult, not impossible, but very, very difficult to slip into an alternative reality silo because they didn't exist. So to be a conservative in the 1980s, you were constantly exposed to the other point of view. You were constantly exposed to a mainstream legacy media which reported the news. So we were more of a unified political culture in the sense that at least you had the same rough set of facts and issues. So... To be a conservative in the 1980s, you knew what liberals said and thought in contrast to now, where, in fact, you can live not just in a bubble, but in that hermetically sealed silo where you have a completely different reality. That was not the case in the 1980s. 
That's right. In the 1980s, if you saw a conservative on on television, for instance, they were often in conversation with a liberal or in debate with a liberal. That was the political entertainment of the day. It was this kind of left-right sparring. And so conservatives had to engage with liberal ideas because that was the structure of political programming at the time. You hadn't yet cracked the code for how to make conservative media profitable and all-encompassing. There just wasn't the this, this space for it yet. It had, there hadn't been proof of concept yet. And that's why I think that Rush Limbaugh is so important. He shows that you can have conservative programming that sets the agenda and that can make hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And that is something that had never been the case when it came to conservative media. And I think that throwing in that both the entertainment incentive and the money incentive really did change conservative media and how it grew over the next few decades. This is an important thing. And I keep using the word the entertainment wing because, and and you write about this very, very effectively, Because it's important to understand that we're not just talking about right-wing, left-wing politics. We're talking about the line between entertainment and Mm -hmm. politics, which was blurred. And this has been happening for a long time. By the 1990s, that, that line between entertainment and politics had all but disappeared. When I'm talking about entertainment, I'm, I'm talking about you know people who now suddenly look at politics as, hey, this is like the popular culture. This is funny. It's fast moving. It changed the way that we thought and behaved in political terms. That's right. You could see that blurring happening across the board. It wasn't just on the right. You have Bill Clinton going on Arsenio Hall and on MTV. MTV is a station that had only been in existence for a a short while. And that idea that you had to be kind of cool in politics, but also that politics could be the basis for entertainment. Rush Limbaugh's show was funny. People Mm -hmm. loved listening to it. They would set up these rush rooms in restaurants between 9 and 12 where people could go in and they could just listen to Rush Limbaugh and chat with other Rush Limbaugh fans. And that idea of a conservative media figure having fans and devotees in this way in a kind of Rush could be very negative, and he said extremely offensive things. But for folks who were in agreement with him and listening to him, they really enjoyed it. He brought in rock and roll music. He he had this kind of vibe that was much more entertaining. Um, And the other example that I use in the book that I think is really important is Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect which was a comedy show that was sort of the predecessor in many ways to The Daily Show, but that was very focused and and very insistent, Bill Maher was, on, on mixing actors and comedians and political people. And he always wanted to have a conservative in one of the four guest chairs on his show. And it's where a whole generation of conservative pundits learned to do politics through comedy and outrage. So who do you think now are the dominant conservative media figures, the ones who really make a difference? Who is who is driving the trend right now? When you, when you look at the end point of this evolution from the 1990s, who are the most powerful, influential, entertaining conservative media voices? You know, right now, no one looms larger than Tucker Carlson. He is the person, uh, the host on Fox News, who has embodied the Trump message in a way that 
his audience really responds to and that has a real agenda setting power. At the same time, because this world is so big, there's so many podcasts and social media feeds that I could name. There's a podcast called Ruthless that has a huge audience and that really leans into entertainment. It's modeled after Pod Save America. Ruthless, of course, mocking the Supreme Court for not having Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? I mean, so you also have a certain irreverence, right? But I mean, that's part of the entertainment is to be transgressive. It's like, ooh, they're saying that. They're actually mocking a dead woman. Cool. People love that, that that (laughs) sense of transgression, that, that idea of like drinking liberal tears is such a strong motivation and has a real power. And, you know, there are still people like Glenn Beck, who has a a fairly decent sized following, but even Beck, who was a real innovator as late as the, the 20 teens, is in a much more crowded marketplace and doesn't have anywhere near the influence that he had during, say, the Tea Party years. And I would even throw in though I probably wouldn't have 10 years ago, a figure like Alex Jones, who, even though he's not really a mainstream conservative, has influenced so much of the way that the right talks about politics, ideas like false flags and crisis actors and pedophile rings, like that language and those ideas that were fostered and festered on Alex Jones's show have become a part of mainstream conservative politics and mainstream conservative media. So let's connect these dots a little bit more here. So we have the entertainment wing of the party, the the, the blurring of the lines between entertainment and politics. What is the nexus between being entertaining and conspiracy theories? Because this seems to be, to go hand in hand, the belief in the secret knowledge. Is that what they're peddling? Is that mm-hmm. not only we're being transgressive and entertaining and funny and saying things that nobody else will, but we are telling you the real story about the pedophiles and the pizza rings and all of that sort of thing. I mean, is that was that inevitable? Is that deeply ingrained in this process, the, the conspiracy theory? Because, you know, I think a lot of people are looking at the environment going, how can tens of millions of people believe things that are just clearly flat out demonstrably bullshit? What is the persistence of of lies? So how does that work? It is very deeply rooted. Conspiracy theories have been part of conservative media from from very early on, but without going all the way back into like the 1950s and, and fluoride and communists. But you um, kind of have to, look, right? You kind of have to because it's, yeah. it's there, right? The paranoid style in American politics, which still is great, was written in 1964. Right. And you could apply that, right, to what, what's happening now. So there is a long history of that sort of thing. And it's embedded there in the very raison d'etre of conservative media, this idea that you need to trust us. Mm-hmm. You tune into us because we're right and because we're right. <laughs> we're right wing and we're right. And we're and the ones the other guy's going- lying to you and hates you. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So you have to trust us. And once you have that kind of loyalty and trust, it is very easy to manipulate. It is very easy to turn conspiratorial, particularly when you frame your opposition as the enemy. And gosh, you see this, Charlie, in the 1990s in the conspiracies about the Clintons. Now, the Clintons were not a clean, perfectly running ethical administration. But the conspiracy complex 
around the Clintons, including things like the Clinton body count and these tapes like the, the Clinton Chronicles, which was this conspiracy videotape that circulated all through Congress and that was funded by Jerry Falwell. Like that became the bread and butter of conservative media in the 1990s. And once you have the internet and social media, it, it really gains traction because it fits so neatly into the political idea that there is a liberal elite and then ultimately a conservative elite who are lying to you. And you need to see through those lies in order to see the truth. And that kind of discrediting is absolutely core to um, the project of conservative media, certainly today, but it was there in the past as well. Well, and also, of course, you know, hand in hand with that is the delegitimization of any of the traditional media by pointing mm -hmm. out the bias. But the bias was real. It was mm -hmm. there and it gave conservative media a foil. So I guess the, the question is flipping it around. To what extent did the media not see uh, the way that it was being perceived by many people? Uh, how were they unable to counter the accusations of bias? Do you follow so my question it, there? I mean, it, I, I do. Because, I mean, yeah. okay, because because I remember back in the in the nineteen nineties when this was all shifting, that the the reaction from much of the legacy mainstream media was, well, you know, none of this criticism is valid. If we're being criticized for being biased, that must be that we're doing our job. And often did write or speak with disdain about, you know, 40% of the population. And I remember this being part of the conservative media, that it was as if they were giving us this massive gift by covering the news the way they did and not sitting down and going, okay, how can we counter this, still do our job, still be effective journalists without feeding the narrative that we are untrustworthy? Yes. The, you know, there was such a vested belief, especially, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s in this idea of objectivity and that journalistic practices would lead to objective reporting. Um, and that belief in that process and in those values was so core that journalists often did not see, and still to this day sometimes do not see, the way that they have all sorts of built-in biases um, in, in all sorts of different directions um, that, that are invisible to them because the people around them share the same set of beliefs. And that could be, you know, in the 1950s and 60s because it was a mostly white male profession. It could be in later years because there was this real suspicion of conservatism and the right. It's something that you see in the early 1960s. You see all of these pieces come out about the radical right and the John Birch Society, and they were right. But mm -hmm. that was the only story they were telling about conservatism. And so there wasn't necessarily a kind of robust conversation happening around politics. It, it does change a little bit, Charlie, in the early 1970s because news outlets do begin to take into account the criticisms that they're getting, particularly from Spiro Agnew mm. and Richard Nixon, and they start having conservatives on. So like Phyllis Schlafly had a regular spot on CBS News mm -hmm. um, to as, as did liberal commentators to provide that kind of what they saw as, as balanced reporting or balanced commentary on politics. But there have been many a moment among mainstream media outlets where they felt 
either dismissive or embattled um, in relationship to the right. And that has not always led to uh, the most accurate reporting and analysis. So speaking of Phyllis Schlafly, do you ever see that miniseries, Mrs. America, about her? Oh, yeah. It's actually very good Mm -hmm. And, and, and really captures, you know, how influential she was. Also, I think that Spiro Agnew is underappreciated in terms of his historical role as kind of the proto-populist anti-media figure, you know, because of his Absolutely. spectacular fall. But he really was one of the, the the figures who began to create that language, that voice, that pugilistic approach, and the relentless attacks on the media. A lot of what we trace back to Newt Gingrich can also be traced back to Spiro Agnew, can't it? Absolutely. So um, in many ways, those arguments that Spiro Agnew brings to the attention of national media are ones that had been being worked out on the right uh, at a lower level throughout the 1950s and 1960s. But in Spiro Agnew, they found this champion. And he was sort of Richard Nixon's attack dog. And so he was throwing a lot of punches. A lot of his speeches were actually written by Pat Buchanan, who was working for the Nixon administration. And on the right, Richard Nixon, they were kind of suspicious of. They saw him as too moderate and not a real conservative, but they loved Spiro Agnew. When the Watergate crisis first started to break, they were kind of like, well, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, it could end up that Nixon is forced to resign and we get Spiro Agnew as president, and that would be an amazing outcome. Obviously, history went a little differently, but he really was a champion of a cause that conservatives had been trying to promote for decades, and he brings it to the the fore of the conversation. So on this question of, you know, the conspiracy theories and the disinformation and the misinformation, and, and I'm sort of working this out as I'm listening to you here, you know, a lot of the critiques seem to be making the category error of not fully understanding this entertainment transgressive element of the right-wing media, and that's a way of backing into the question. You have millions of people that believe things that are not true. There's a human instinct that if you're lied to, that you resent it, you push back against it. We have millions of Americans that are being lied to on a regular basis and they don't seem to mind. What is the mentality? Do people like believe what they get, you know, fed through some of these entertaining right-wing media? Or is that part of the entertainment? Like, I kind of believe it or I kind of don't believe it, but this is kind of fun stuff. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, that maybe when we're, we on the outside are asking the question, true or false, category error, because that's not the way this new media functions. It's like a completely different organic creature. In my experience, one of the things people get wrong the most when it comes to conservative media is they see the the audiences as kind of sponges that just soak up everything that they're told and believe everything that they're told. I don't think that's actually the case. I think it is a mix of, yes, they believe some things that are not true. They say that they believe certain things that are politically advantageous to say that they believe. One person might believe that the election was stolen. Another person might believe that it is better to say that the election was stolen, even if there isn't evidence, and that there is something powerful about having someone who represents you say something that's not true and you all go along with it and there is nothing anyone can do about it. There is this kind of power in that transgressive is a good word for it of being able to just lie 
and have there be no consequences. It's a way of saying kind of F you to folks who are fact checkers or who care about accuracy, that you're not playing by their rules. And that idea of I'm not going to do it the way that you want me to do it is so powerful on the right. It's something that Trump really gave voice to, but even before Donald Trump, that had been, you know, had been there in the Tea Party. It had been there in conspiracy theories about Vince Foster, who who worked for the Clintons and and committed suicide. Um, you know, the, it, it's a mix of the motivations. Birthers, yeah. Birtherism, absolutely. We haven't talked much about Trump, but I, I think a pretty obvious point is that he understood these trends of the conservative media at a visceral level and probably mm-hmm. grasped it more than any other presidential candidate in recent uh, history. Donald Trump is very much a creature of this of this conservative media environment, which also means that when he passes from the scene at some point, that this environment stays, right? I mean, you describe, you know, the developments have led to the triumph of this, you know, more sinister, less conciliatory conservative politics, you know, and despite all the reverence for Reagan, you know, the Republican Party is no longer the party of Reagan. It's not going back to the party of Reagan. It may be the party of Trump now, but it it has taken on its own life, right? I mean, even if if Donald Trump is hit by a meteor tomorrow, all of this remains in place. And there is this atmosphere, there is this style, there is this constituency that demands certain kinds of approaches, and that's not changing anytime soon. Correct? All of the incentives in media and in politics right now on the right are pushing not only in the direction of Donald Trump, but potentially past Donald Trump and into something even further to the right, even less interested in small-D democratic governance. So unless you change those incentives, Donald Trump was a, a master practitioner of a craft that he had been watching for years, right? He could watch somebody like Lou Dobbs espouse birtherism on CNN and then on on Fox for years and kind of see like, what is it that people are attuned to? What are they responding to? Are they responding to the ground zero mosque and creeping Sharia? Are they responding to the birtherism stuff? Is is it the anti-immigrant screeds? And all of that is something that Donald Trump picked up on, but that pre-existed him and will long outlast him. And that's one of the key points. If you spend time watching these things, you know, picking up on the chirons, picking up on what the what the memes are, that's what Republican politics is going to be maybe in a month, two months, three months, four months, because that's they are downstream from that. So, Nicole Hammer, what does it take to break this this cycle? Because as it, it strikes me that that everything that's happening has gotten worse in the last few years and it's going to continue to get worse in terms of the intensity, the competition to peddle the the stronger meth out there to keep the outrage machine revved up. What does it take to break this cycle, if anything? I can't be terribly optimistic on this front because, like I said, the incentives are all pushing in one direction. (laughs) I know, I know. I I could come up with something Pollyannish, but I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that right now, what the right is interested in is power. And as long as the things that they are doing continue to get them power, then they're going to continue to do them. And so they need to start losing and they need to start losing across the board. And that's going to require a couple of things. One, a robust protection of democratic processes because 
once those go away, it's it's much more difficult. Um, and it is going to require both the Democratic Party and pro-democracy conservatives to make sure that they are offering the American people help, that they are are providing them with politics and policy that makes their lives better and gives them something alternative to vote for. Because if they're not doing that, then it is very easy to be wooed away by the people who are telling you very entertaining lies. And so there is a, a an obligation not just to protect democracy more broadly, but to do well by the American people so that they will vote for you. Nicole Hammer is a political historian at Vanderbilt University, specializing in media conservatism, the far right. Her new book is Partisans, the Conservative Revolutionaries Who Remade American Politics in the 1990s. She's also the co-founder of Made by History, the historical analysis section of the Washington Post, and she writes regularly for the New York Times, CNN, Vox, and Politico, and also, as you can tell, is a veteran podcaster. She co-hosts two <laughs> podcasts, Past, Present, and This Day in Esoteric Political History. So you have a tidbit of esoteric political history as an exit here? Ooh, what's something good? Well, you know, we have been doing some Tennessee history because I've just moved from New York to Tennessee for this job at Vanderbilt. And so we, we looked a little bit at Johnny Cash hanging out with Richard Nixon in 1972. There were a lot of, a lot of country music stars who were in support of Nixon's re-election campaign, uh, including Johnny Cash, who talked to Nixon before he endorsed him about the importance of prison reform. Now that is esoteric. Nicole, thank you so it much is. for <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>